Isaiah 49, beginning at verse 1, the prophet writes, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the, for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ, over my years in ministry, I've found that one of the things that I've grown to appreciate more and more deeply every year is the rhythm of the liturgical calendar. The discipline of shaping our year, of shaping our life together into these seasons of fasting and preparation, of feasting and celebration, and the kind of quotidian lull of ordinary time. I found these, reason, these, uh, these rhythms to be deeply meaningful for my faith and for my worship. And I've tried over the years to share the blessings of these liturgical rhythms of the Christian calendar with the church. And there hasn't been much pushback, which surprised me a little bit, to be honest, when I started. People seem to understand the idea of preparing for Christmas and Easter by toning things down during Advent and Lent, although people do get pretty eager to sing Christmas songs uh, in Advent before Christmas. And some people kind of think that six weeks of Lent is a bit much. But one of the seasons that I've come to appreciate more and more over my time here is the season that we're in right now, the season of Epiphany. And it's kind of a funny thing because Epiphany is a season of ordinary time. It's not a season of feasting. It's not a season of fasting or preparation. It's just an ordinary, everyday kind of rhythm between the 12 days of Christmas and the beginning of of Lent, January 6th to whenever Ash Wednesday happens to fall 60 days before um, or 40 days before Easter. 
And it's a season when we normally, together as a church, focus on the life and ministry of Jesus, the teaching and healing ministry of our Lord, the ways that his teaching and ministry proclaim the good news of God's kingdom to the nations of the world. And so normally during this season, we focus on the Gospels in this part of the year. So two years ago, we started walking through the Gospel of Mark. Last year, we looked at themes of how God's love is shared in the world through our own love. And this year in the morning services, we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, this great first sermon of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's a, that's a great thing, and I think it's a rhythm that works really well for this church, which is why I've encouraged it, and I guess why nobody has uh, challenged it or stopped me from uh, structuring the preaching schedule in this way. But there's a second theme that the church throughout history traditionally focuses on during the season of Epiphany through an exploration of Old Testament texts and, uh, and pairing them with the letters of the Apostle Paul. And this other theme of Epiphany focuses on how Jesus is revealed not only to the covenant people of God, but to the nations of the world. That Jesus is revealed as the Savior not only of Israel, but also of the world, creating this new multicultural family of God through the extension of God's blessing to his people to extend beyond them to bless the world. And I, as part of my devotional life, like to walk through the uh, passages that the church traditionally meditates on during the different seasons. And this year, the texts from the Old Testament for the season of Epiphany walk through the suffering servant songs from the book of Isaiah, one of which we read tonight. These well-known passages of God's call to his servant who is called to bear the burden of suffering on behalf of God's people to bring forth the redemption that God has promised. I don't know how, um, how many of you are familiar with the suffering servant passages, but I, I think that many of you probably are. And it's interesting when we uh, look at the suffering servant passages because there's a few interesting interpretive things that pastors and scholars through the ages have done with the suffering servant passages. Um, on the one hand, and this is obvious from a Christian perspective, whenever we read Isaiah through a Christian lens, we obviously see these suffering servant passages as prophecies about Jesus, uh, as prophecies about the coming Messiah, prophecies that Jesus fulfills in his life and in his ministry. The servant of the Lord brings justice on the earth, is established as king over Israel to speak a prophetic word of truth to the people of God, quietly and confidently restoring God's people to right relationship and right worship, interceding for God's people and bearing the burden of the punishment for their sins, despised and dejected by those he came to save. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, yet he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's from a different one of the suffering servant songs from Isaiah. And you know, a passage like that, it's not hard for us to see 
how these passages can be interpreted as pointing to Jesus, interpreted messianically, pointing to the coming of Christ and his work in the world to redeem us from our sins. But in the original context of Isaiah, in the context of the exile of God's people in Babylon, these suffering servant songs aren't clearly messianic prophecies. And there's some places, like our passage today, where it's clear that Isaiah intends for us to read the suffering servant as the nation of Israel itself living in exile under God's punishment for its sins, awaiting restoration, like our passage today in verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor, in whom I will display my glory. The original meaning and the original context of Isaiah's text is about the nation of Israel itself. And we apply that to Christ then as the head of the restored Israel, of the renewed kingdom of God. So the suffering servant is Christ, the suffering servant is Israel. But from the earliest days of the church, there's been another additional interpretation of the suffering servant. Yes, Israel is the suffering servant. Yes, Jesus Christ as the head of the restored Israel is the suffering servant. But we too, because of our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, are also suffering servants spoken about in these prophecies. We, through our union with Christ, enter into the story of exile and restoration of sin and salvation of sacrifice and glory. By our union with Christ, these stories become our stories. And this identity becomes our identity. We, the people of the church, the people of the new Israel, become suffering servants, bearing the sins of the world in our bodies as we witness to the justice and peace that is found in the kingdom of God. And this is echoed and built on in the writings of the Apostle Paul. This is beautiful thing, this three-part kind of interpretation, a sin salvation service kind of dynamic like what we find in uh, the Heidelberg Catechism and other uh, writings of, of the Christian faith. It really resonates in a beautiful and, and personal way. As Israel suffered under the burden of sin and exile awaiting the coming Messiah, as Christ suffered under the, under the burden of the sins of the world awaiting the, the miracle of God's resurrection, so too we suffer under the burden of a fallen world that groans in eager expectation, awaiting the advent of our Lord and King who will make all things new. This mystical understanding of our union with Christ and therefore our participation in the stories and identity that Christ takes on in the Gospels is key to the whole theological project of the New Testament. In Christ, the stories of Israel become our stories. The story of the gospel becomes our story. And that's a deeply personal thing. A profoundly personal thing. I mean, the way that we are included in the unfolding of God's plan for history, the way that we are saved and redeemed in the grand scheme of the restoration of all things is overwhelming. And this is what inspires the great songs of our faith, 
the great works that Christians have produced over the years, the fact that we, as insignificant as we seem, matter to God and are part of his plan for this world. It's beautiful. And it brings us to our knees in confession and adoration to sing the praises of our God who saves us. It's amazing. What is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God, the prophet puts it in our passage for this evening. I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. These are words that are as true for us as they are for Christ, as true for us as they are for Israel in exile. But here's the thing. The story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end with our salvation and redemption, as amazing as that is. The story doesn't end with our personal relationship with God, as beautiful as that promise is to our ears. God goes on in this passage to say these words to the suffering servant, to our Lord Jesus Christ, and to us today. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. It is too small a thing. Too small a thing. Too small a thing to be God's servant, too small a thing to restore God's people and bring back those who have wandered away, that, God says, is too small of a thing. So often we reduce the gospel to our personal story of salvation when the promise that God offers in the gospel isn't just about us. It's about the whole world. God's project is about more than you or me. God's project is about more than our little community of worshipers here in South Kitchener. God's project is about bringing the nations of the world into the kingdom of God about proclaiming the salvation of God to the ends of the earth, about shining the light of the kingdom of heaven through us into every corner of this world of darkness. And this has got me thinking this week about immigration, about this crazy new reality that we find ourselves in, with the nations of the world literally moving into our backyard. People of God, there's an amazing thing happening in the world today. 
as people become increasingly mobile, as we are introduced to new and different cultures that we never would have come into contact with on our own, God is doing an amazing thing. And the first thing that I see God doing through this new reality of a globalized world is starting a revival in the church here in North America. And this revival isn't being led by traditional North American Christian leaders. It's a revival being led by missionaries to the United States and Canada from Christian communities in the global south and east. From Christian communities that have experienced real persecution, facing violence and death for the sake of the gospel. Christians from all over the world, from Nigeria, Egypt, Syria, China, Indonesia, Christians from all of these countries are coming to North America and preaching the heart of the gospel with a power that we have not experienced in a long time. The Christian church in North America is waking up from its sleepy, consumeristic compromise with the powers of this world, and this revival of the soul of the church in North America is being pioneered by these Christian leaders and pastors who are coming to us from Africa, Asia, and South America. And it's an amazing thing to see how these immigrant Christians are breathing new life into a Christian community that has long been compromised by its cozy relationship to power, to such an extent that the church is growing in North America largely because of the witness and efforts of immigrant and ethnic minority churches and Christians. Even in our own denomination, in the Christian Reformed Church, the churches that are growing, the new churches that are being planted and organized are almost all ethnic minority churches or multicultural churches led by ethnic minority leaders. That's an amazing thing to see. But there's another thing that I see God doing at the same time. And that second thing that I see is the ways that God is opening up new mission fields to the proclamation of the gospel. As people from all over the world move into our neighborhoods, these same parts of the world that are producing these leaders that are leading this North American Christian revival, we are being offered the opportunity to speak the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ into the lives of people and cultures from nations that have long been closed to missionary efforts. The sheer number of Chinese and Arabic-speaking immigrants living in the region of Waterloo alone is staggering. If we were to fund missionaries as a church, if we were to fund missionaries to Syria or China, they would never dream of the opportunities that we have been given for open proclamation to these people in our own community. Some people who I have met 
mourn the ways that the church is changing. And there is always loss when we face change. And it is okay for us to mourn the ending of things that have been precious to us in our life together as a community that have been important to our tradition of the Christian faith. But there is so much more to celebrate. Because we are seeing with our own eyes in our day the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises in Scripture. We can see with our own eyes the beginning of the vision of the Apostle John from Revelation chapter 7 of the great multitude gathered together from all tribes and tongues and peoples and nations singing the praises of the Lamb who was slain. We can see these things today. Martin Luther King Jr. and other leaders of the civil rights movement in the United States throughout um, their public advocacy and, and public ministry held forth this vision of what they called the beloved community, the beloved community. This community of faith formed and shaped by the agape love of God a light to the nations that modeled for the world what it looked like to live together as God's people, black, brown, and white, indigenous, slave, and settler, rich and poor, young and old, together living out the justice and mercy of the kingdom of God in the face of the kingdoms of this fallen world. A community where all people could be valued as image bearers of God. And it is my prayer, it is my prayer that this would be our vision, that this would be our goal, that we would rejoice at the great things that God is doing as he prepares us for renewal and for life in the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. O Lord our God, the things that you do for us in Christ are amazing. We are brought to our knees when we think of the ways that you have honored us. Even when we were your enemies, even when we were living in sin, you chose us, you called us, you forgave us, you redeemed us, and you adopted us as your children. Lord, we thank you for this indescribable gift. And we are sorry for the times 
when we reduce the entirety of the gospel and the entirety of your promises to our own story. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would empower us to see the ways that you are calling us to live and be as citizens of the kingdom of God in this world. As witnesses to your power and glory. We pray that you would help us to see and to celebrate the great things that you are doing in our midst. And that we would join you in the work that you are already doing. Bless us, O Lord, we pray, that we may bless you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.